Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This podcast is brought to you by the Showtime original Personality Crisis, One Night Only. Directed by Academy Award winner Martin Scorsese and Emmy nominee David Tedeschi, Personality Crisis, One Night Only celebrates the enduring cultural legacy of David Johansson's life and all of his personas. From his days as a pioneer of the punk rock movement, leading rock band New York Dolls, to his reinvention as Buster Poindexter, the chameleonic Johansson created a genre unto himself. Featuring a live performance, Personality Crisis, One Night Only is a testament to a performer who challenged the world to think about identity differently, changing music forever. Personality Crisis, One Night Only, streaming April 14th, only on Showtime. Streaming with Paramount+. Plus. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, Join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more.
Hey everyone, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 22. This week we have uh, another guest, Wally, who tweets from at WaxBanks and writes um, on Medium.com and, and other places about fish and all kinds of other stuff. We're really excited to have Wally here and really appreciate you taking the time. The, the show that he chose is 111497 from West Valley City, Utah. We're going to play the second set after we chat with Wally for a bit. And, you know, we're always really, really excited to talk about 97 and play 97. And Wally actually wrote a book about 97. So, um, first, the I guess, book. The, the book. book. The book. Uh, Wally, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a genuine, uh, it's a great compliment. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for um, coming on. And if your book hasn't made it to the masses yet, I'm sure it will now that you're on our, our podcast. My, my <laughs> monthly royalties uh, email tells me that it has not yet made it to the masses. So oh, okay. You get at, least, right. at least six more from this. Yeah. Nice. Thanks again, Wally, for um, joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you on, especially since we've read a little bit about your book. You know, first of all, the first question we always ask is uh, of our guests is how did you how did you first get into fish? Clem Smith was this dude that I was on the uh, high school bowl team with, um, and I was at his his younger brother was one of my little brother's best friends, Fritz. They had nice. the, Dopiest names in that family. <laughs> uh, I think, and I think they were like they were like the Bluths on Arrested Development. There was like Francis Clement Smith and Clement Francis Smith. And their dad was like Clement Francis Xavier the Twelfth. Anyway, he had his confirmation party, and uh, he had Junta on, and Foam was playing, and I hated it worse than any physical feeling I'd ever hated in my entire life. <laughs> Uh, it was, it's the dumbest thing in the world. Like right. to hear that and to have no context for it, like mm-hmm. I'm falling. If only. Yeah. Um, and then I I rode his mountain bike down down the like sloping hill behind their ridiculous oversized house, and I went over the handlebars and gutted myself. Nice. It was just a well, shit wow. day. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? I don't know. I was. I mean, he was getting confirmed, so I was like 15 or 16, wow. and I was two years younger. Um, nice. And then, uh, so then I went out and bought Rift when it was like the Columbia House selection of the month or something, uh, yes. thinking, I've heard of that band. And I didn't know word one about rock and roll, so I thought I better get some shit that I've actually heard of. So yes. I got Rift. I listened to the first two tracks endlessly and hated the entire rest of the album. Oh, wow. And then I have no idea how I liked them after that. <laughs> some miracle just... occurred, and I just started liking the shit overnight. And I remember playing. Chalk Dust Torture, the studio Chalk Dust Torture for my mom. And I was like, Mom, they improvised this whole thing. You're not going to believe it. And I played it for her, and she's like, no, they didn't. <laughs> People can't do that. They can't just make that up on the spot. Right. Yeah, yeah. That was like, the end for her. That was the end of her um, fish experience. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I used to, I, I played Rift for my mom a few times, and I caught her, like, enjoying it. Not that I didn't think she would, but I also just didn't think she would, you know? Nice. And, um, um, she's like, this is really cool. It reminds me of Electric Light Orchestra, ELO. Right? <laughs> she's like, you should check it out. So I checked it out. I'm like, mom, this is n- this is not at all similar. <laughs> you know, like, no. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, that's a sure well, way to turn a kid off the fish. Yeah. This, this yeah. is exactly like some cheese ball thing that I heard while I was first humping your dad. <laughs> that might be. Maybe that's like in a, a secret parent manual. It's like just just tell them their music sounds like ELO, and they'll like never yeah, right. do it again. Oh, I'm gonna try that on my kids. I conceived right. you to music a lot like this. It's just off, awful stuff that I really didn't pay attention to, but it was different. So, I yeah. just, you know, you're probably one of the first guests to say that, like, your initial reaction was just like, ugh, ugh, God, you know? 
But it's well, cool that you are where you are now. Oh man, I, I mean, I, I didn't listen to, I didn't listen. I was just talk, talking, I think, Stephen Grip about this on t- Twitter that I, I didn't listen to rock and pop uh, pretty much at all as a kid. Like I'd hear the radio, but in my house it was all my mom's records, which were classical music and Broadway soundtracks, <laughs> and my dad's record collection, which was all uh, hidden. It was like I, I was never able to. I was able to find it only like a couple of years ago, and it was all this fantastic, like electric Miles Davis and Motown shit. Nice. But um, it was all all the stuff that I ever got my hands on as a kid was like disco, uh, disco and records, and like uh, mm-hmm. anthologies of like fifties rock rockabilly or something. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what the hell I was hearing when I first heard Fish. Like I didn't know there was a cultural context for it, and it right. took me ages to sort of reverse engineer. Like, oh, there's this, you know. A hundred-year tradition of of American music that they're a part of, while you right. learn something about it. That's really that cool. took a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not something you can just do overnight. Yeah. So, um, and you know, it, it's funny you mentioned like a lot of classical when you were a kid because you're now a writer, and I just assume all like good writers have listened to a bunch of classical when they were a kid because it makes <laughs> you smart, right? So, um, that's uh, I don't know about ahead. smarter. <laughs> Make you something, right, right, right. Intellectual, maybe I don't know. Um, anyway, my kids don't listen to any classical music. I should probably start. <laughs> doomed. Um, they're doomed. And now's, doomed. now's the time because right. they're they're gonna they're gonna cut that shit off at the knees pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They already. I mean, she already tries. My older one, at least. But um, I always win. Anyway, so you write um, a lot about fish now, and yep. um, when did you start? You've got you've, uh, I guess, reviewed a lot of shows on fish.net, right? And you've got, you got yourself a web blog. Um, when, when did you start writing on that and uh, why? Why did you start? So uh, I, start, I actually started blogging in 2002. Um, and uh, when, like, Andrew Sullivan was the example, the not mm-hmm. great example uh, to follow. And um, I think, it, like, within a couple of years, I was just, I was writing, like, thousands of words a week online. And... I, th- I think fish had sort of slipped off my radar for a while. Um, but at some point, I think I discovered Mr. Miner's blog. And he, he put me on to listening to 2003 again, which I'd sort of written off as right. a, a kind of a, a druggy haze, um, which, which you know, in no small measure is. But, um, yeah. yeah, I think we've, <laughs> we've said that a few times ourselves. For sure. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very, it's very samey. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that wouldn't be a problem if, you know, fish fans were naturally inclined to try to listen to all of it. Uh, right, which is right. kind of a, a self, uh, a horrific selfing, and um, <laughs> and he also put me on to like uh, you know ninety nine and two thousand, which I had I, I stopped going to shows um, in uh, like I went to a show in Worcester at the end of nineteen ninety eight, the last show of Fall Tour I think, mm-hmm. and they nice. played this uh, like outlandish like industrial jam and limb by limb, and mm. Scott Yakophone that guitarist from Burlington came on mm-hmm. and I hated everything about every minute of that show for mm-hmm. reasons I cannot begin to express. Right. And um, so they, for the longest time, were just kind of off the radar and when they split up I figured, ah, it's done. Right. And, um, right. But, but as, the, as the machine started ramping up as they were going to get back together, uh, I don't know, there's just a lot of isn't there a lot of personal stuff to work out with a band that you've loved more than like longer than you've loved any one person who isn't your family, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. that was the, that was sort of it. And realizing that other people were doing it and I thought I could do it uh, better. 
<laughs> it's, the, it's the arrogant hidden reason. <laughs> right on. Yeah, it, no, that's, I think I think it also uh, means you're confident, which is what you need. Confidence. Yeah. Oh, I mean, ar- arrogant will do if I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so did you have like a system for the .NET reviews? Because you've done a ton of them. Um, did you do them all like? Did you have any like approach, or did you just do them randomly, or what? Oh, uh, there were there was like a a two week period where I was trying to systematically review a lot of shows, and everything else is is sort of catch as catch can. Um, they started out uh, as pithy as I could manage, like one paragraph sort of consumer guide style, nice. um, and I I now find those irritating um, because they're if you're going to read a one paragraph thing, just listen to the show. Like, if you really only want a paragraph of guidance about it, here's my paragraph of fucking guidance. Go listen to the show. It's all pretty good. Um, but then, it, like, as I started sort of writing, writing these windy, long, uh, kind of doubling back, parenthesis-filled, weird, idiosyncratic, very personal essays, um, people seem to like them. Like, people, um, mm-hmm. that's that, I, the I like this thumb up little icon Mm -hmm. (laughs) is cracked to me (laughs) it's just it's ruining my life because it's so it's so easy to write something that somebody will just give you the thumb Mm -hmm. and and i'm addicted to the it sounds kind of creepy when i say it aloud i'm addicted Mm -hmm. to the um instant affirmation you know (laughs) that's what that's all we all like yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. and twitter and twitter is that and it sucks yeah Yep. Just it changed, yeah, I mean, it changed Twitter. Well, Twitter probably had it from the start, but it changed like Facebook and MySpace and all those things when someone could give the old thumbs up on a post or a picture that you put up, right? Yeah. Because then everybody wanted to do it and see see how many they could get. And the, and the thing is, like, I don't mind I don't mind getting feedback, but it's it's personalized feedback. That's it's the person giving it. It's like better for them to have to even even just just to articulate like thank you. Just saying right. thank you, like the psychic task of making thank you get from your brain to your mouth is important. But the task of, you know, pointing the mouse pointer over that stupid thumb is just not. Yeah, you know? not at all. Right. Anyway, like, so, I, so I, I don't know. Now it's just like whenever I feel like I need to, uh, I need to, uh, five minutes of validation, I'll spend two hours writing one of these immense <laughs> Like if you got a dirty look from your wife or something? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I hide out to do it. Right, that's the, right. that's that's the miracle of being a freelancer is she doesn't see me seven hours a day, five days a week, so I can just I can do right. a thing if I do a thing. <laughs> that's great. So, um, when uh, when was your first fish show? When's the first time you saw the the band? I know you said you talked about the '98 Worcester show. The recently released December seventh, '95 in Niagara oh, Falls. Oh, really? Nice. It was uh, the like my that's mom drove me. We were living uh, like I live an hour south of Buffalo. And uh, in in high school, and uh, my mom drove me and Jesus, Fred, and maybe Fred's little brother, these these rock and roller dudes that I was friends with, and <laughs> drove us to the show. And it was like twenty bucks for tickets. It was in a, a little gymnasium, and um, I'd never seen hippies. I don't know if I ever have seen hippies because you know it's it was the nineties, but uh, I'd never seen drugs other than weed taken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd heard about their deleterious effects, but I had never witnessed them firsthand. <laughs> um, I'd never been to a rock concert, and uh, I, oh, I, so I this was your first all. concert generally. Yeah, yeah, this was wow. this was unbelievable. What yeah. a weird start! And so my mom dropped us off, and she went to the Niagara Falls Outlet Mall and bought my first electric razor. It was a real coming of age day. <laughs> and, uh, 
And then she picked you up after? Yeah, she she parked outside for like an hour because she didn't know how long it was going to be needed yeah. up. Right. So she was just sitting out there like a fool. That's awesome. She's like, I'm sure it'll be over in an hour. So yeah, it's, it's out, just like, a concert. Yeah, like three hours later and you're like, you're, <sighs> I mean, you probably looked pretty interesting and pretty unique unique night before you, right? It was it was mad like it was magical and it was magical not in the sense of like the 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 kind of banal word magical which basically just means super good but right. magical in the sense of like it 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 transformed everything that i thought about music and about people gathering in large numbers and about what what darkness could feel like like how material it could feel and, like, why would you ever go to fucking Niagara Falls? Because I didn't get it. <laughs> it right. was just water. And then all of a sudden it was water and air and smoke and people. And Fred made out with this girl who had glitter on her face, like, <laughs> the entire show. And he came over. He, like, found me. He was, uh, I think he was, uh, he was on something. I remember what it was. And he, like, came over. He's like, well, this is really great. I'm going to go make out with that glitter chick some more. And I was furious. Because I was like, are you listening to the shit that is coming off the stage? But at the same time, it's like. What, but why wasn't I making out with it? With, with glitter. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it was just like this weird, erotic, uh, uh, psychedelic nexus. Uh, and it was fantastic. And so it's like anything else. Like the first person you kiss, it's like every person you kiss after that for a while, you're chasing the weird feeling of mm-hmm. not knowing what the hell you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was that. I didn't understand any of it. I loved it. Wow. That's awesome. Every minute. Yeah. And, and you kept seeing shows through through 97 let's talk a little bit about 97 i mean you you wrote a book the the book on on fall 97 um a tiny space to move and breathe notes from the fall um 97 did you i guess first of all how did you get the idea to do it and also did you see how many of those shows did you see and and how did those your experience in seeing the shows and then thinking about writing about them later how did that all come together uh i am not a tour core I've never toured with a band, mm-hmm. and uh, I've never seen more than a handful of shows in a year. Uh, I saw one in 95 and the Buffalo show in 96 in fall, which was kind of a, um, an incredible time, but it was, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of a you know, nothing show. Yeah, 97. Yeah. I was at Star Lake and Darien Lake, which are one night after the other, right. and then saw Worcester, the third night in Worcester, and... Uh, and that was it. I saw one show in Fall 97. And I, the, because the idea of touring to me was something that people had done maybe in the 60s. Or really? I, mm-hmm. I mean, I had, I had no idea what the hell, like why anybody would tour with a rock band. I still hadn't figured that out. <laughs> right. So um, Yeah, it's, it's kind it, of crazy to do. Yeah, it's, and it's, you know, you need either money or the willingness to risk your health. <laughs> yeah. Which I have neither of those things. <laughs> um, so how did the book like idea it. come together? Uh, I've been trying to figure that out today. Actually, when was the when was the December sixth, ninety seven show, the Palace show released? Like the official release? Do you remember? Hmm, no, not long ago, maybe a year. A couple of years. Uh, like I, I know that it was before the book. Um, and because I, 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 increasingly, I'm thinking that was the impetus to write it. Okay. Um, I needed I needed a book project. Like I'd finished this other manuscript. I needed something to hold my attention w- while it was. Um, Sort of between writing and editing this other this other manuscript, and um, the Palace show had come out, and it, that to me is there's only uh, there's a handful of albums and and live shows that are sacred to me, 
um, that's a, it's such a freighted word, and people sound goofy when they say it. But uh, like Interstellar Space by John Coltrane um, is, uh, or In a Silent Way, mm-hmm. um, uh, and there's a small number of albums that to me are too too powerful or too important to me or too beautiful or pure or something or other um, to like that I, I can't even think about them as music anymore. I have to think about them as almost the soundtrack to a transformative experience. Like I literally will listen to interstellar space once every year or two with the lights off by myself, eyes closed, crying my guts out. I have to save it for that. Um, and December 6, 97 has always had that. It has always been an intoxicant for me that same way. Mm-hmm. And Brad, and I, Brad and I were there. Fuck off. Yeah. Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It was, it was one of like, I mean, if I, I don't think we've ever talked about our it show, but I obviously saw some shows prior to that. But that was—I mean, this is just the one that I was just like—I didn't know what was going on. I think yeah. like even the gin that was like four songs in or whatever. I was like, what? Like, what is going on? I don't—I don't understand it. I'm kind of losing my brain, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. a different um, level. Different level. Yeah, it was right. Anyway, sorry, well, sorry, sorry to cut No, you no, out. no, don't, don't apologize. That's fantastic. Um, so I think it's a, it's an intoxicant for us too, for sure. Still, mm. as well as I mean, it's 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 unbelievable. Like it's an unbelievable show, sort of by the numbers. But the the when I got the tape, like I was I was living at my house in college, and I used to again like turn off the lights and I'd put this music on in my in my ridiculous secondhand like five dollar desk chair that was full of bugs of some kind, and <laughs> I just. I'd invite people to sit in the dark with me and they'd think I was a moron um, for liking this music. And I'd just put it on and I would see purple. Like I would see this very specific like visual phenomenon while hearing the music. And the specific sound of the tape Mm -hmm. became so important to me that when, when the show was released in soundboard, I was disappointed because it didn't sound like a place anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally good. It was, it was the output of the machines on stage, instead of uh, like a, an anthropologist's field recording of mm-hmm. this event. Yeah, I mean, I think and, um, I'm sure we a lot of us feel like that just with tapes in general. There was something pretty, and and just with audience recordings, I guess, versus soundboards. Mm-hmm, sometimes correct. it's nice to go back to an audience recording, and I think oftentimes it's better. But we get so spoiled by the sound quality that it's it's hard to yeah. give up, you know. Yeah, I was actually listening. Sorry, I, I was listening no. to the show of the round play today on on the podcast. Um, and I I went back to Fish Tracks, hoping that it wasn't a soundboard, and it wasn't, which was actually kind of exciting because you'd get the resonance of Mike is like just different. Obviously, you know what I mean. And all those things are just you, you get to hear the response of the crowd better. Mm-hmm. Um, and Arjun and I have talked about this before, but when you listen to a tape enough you know so many times you know every sound that comes out of it i think this is what you're getting at not only the notes but like the ups and the downs and 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 the taper figuring the levels out and those things and it it just it just it takes you somewhere Mm -hmm. yeah and you and the the thing is like you're it's it matches more closely a a typical listening experience in a way like you're you're, you don't really know how to process a soundboard recording because it doesn't sound like being in a room with musicians you know it sounds like being in a recording booth mm. um and and hearing it 
hearing music that had come to represent the kind of perfection to me uh, and hearing it perfectly reproduced and I just uh, it, it was like a wet fart it was <laughs> maybe I'm overstating it a little bit but because those can sometimes be pretty great but um, <laughs> it, it was just suddenly it was it, it had it reduced its status because every time I heard the tape and the tape is a thing that somebody somewhere like made for me and sent me in a bubble mailer and then hearing this MP3, it had uh, it had lost it had lost the totemic power that it had, and that weird disjunction um, became really important to the book because it ended up being about well this other person that I no longer recognize fell in love with this music in 1997 and 98, and now an old fat bald unshaven asshole uh, and those are two words that I probably shouldn't have stuck to, right together um, now he at least a comma uh, yeah uh, an unshaven guy who is a bit of an asshole uh, there we have it um, and now I was having all these weird ambivalent feelings about something that I thought was not just important to me but part of me and that's yeah. a weird it was just kind of an oddball existential break. And I was living in a crappy situation in our apartment, and I needed somewhere to go imaginatively. So figuring that out at my keyboard seemed like a good escape. So what about, how did you actually do it? Did you did you listen to a show, and then you go back and write, and then listen to it again? Or did you just sort of write while you were, like, how did, how did that work? It was, um, I find it hard to write while listening to music with lyrics. Um, hmm. So I would just, I would listen to like stretches of the show and then I would end up listening over and over again to especially long tracks uh, like long jams and um, I was writing while listening to the music and uh, I found it useful to have some 97 Fish on as a kind of sonic reference yeah. um, and, and, a, and a memory reference just like a, a sensual reference um, while writing so that I could like stay in the mood that the, mu- that the music had um, and uh I mostly just write like with music on the headphones for like uh, my son was what an, a year and a half, two years old at that point, uh, and was uh, I was basically while he would nap, I'd do an hour, an hour and a half of writing, and then after he went to bed, uh, sometimes on a weekend I would steal an hour from my family uh, with their permission, so I guess borrow, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and just kind of and try to fit it in. And with everything else going on, uh, part of the reason that the book sort of keeps pulling away from Fish's music as such is that it was it was trying to fit a little slice of experiencing the music into the tumult of everything else that was going on in our lives at that moment. And so it's as much a record of making that transition back and forth between the mundane world and the weird magical musical world, yeah. um, and which was which was also a private world. That, in which 97 me lived. Um, so the, hmm. the book is also about that transition, which That's sounds nice, super yeah. pretentious, but I am fucking no. pretentious. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did tell me what city you lived in. And that's, I mean, you know, geez. <laughs> yeah, Cambridge represent. Well, that's why we wanted to talk to you, man. I mean, this is, this is yeah. you know, this is not a place for people who don't have strong opinions, I think. Well, to us, to, to me and Brad, you know, and I'll only speak for myself, but I think for for me 97 is what i always will think of when i think of fish you know like when that's what immediately will come to mind probably forever just because mm. that's when we were i was at my um most i was most open to understanding and learning what was going on around me at that <laughs> time you know i right. 
it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy what's going on now as much, but um, that's like, I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's such a uh, memorable time. And I guess the, the more time that goes by, it actually now is more of a um, nostalgia, I guess, than it is a res- yeah. unnecessarily a respect and um, appreciation for the music itself. I, I still love the music, but I now it sounds different than it did even mm-hmm. a few years ago. As more time goes on, I think it, I think of it more as like a, a specific point in time that was great um Mm -hmm. musically brad i don't know if you how you feel about it but i'd love to hear both of you guys talk about what you think 97 was like well i i think number one wally's title to his book is amazing right because back on you know my years of life it really fall 97 it's just a little tiny little space there Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and it um but it, it had a huge impact on me obviously um and RJ, I think you said it succinctly in that um, going back and listening, especially with this the summer and fall of 2013, going back and listening to 97, it's not it's not the end all be all, right? And and I don't want to to discount it, but it's it's just not the end all be all. It's amazing, but I was also at an amazing point in my life. I was at an amazing point of um my my growth i guess you know from like going from high school to college learning about the world outside of my little suburban neighborhood our suburban neighborhood rj right and and yeah so it it was it was just a it was a part of like a big opening for me um and so that goes right into your nostalgic point that i I think it's nostalgia i love it i love every note of of two 12, 6, 97. I love every note of 12, 7, 97. Mm-hmm. 12, 12, 97. I mean, you know, these are all shows that you could turn on the middle of a, the 20-minute Piper or whatever, and I'd, I'd know exactly where, where we are and what I was doing or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. So, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's, 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 you know, the best they've ever done. Eh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. What, Wally, what do you think? I mean, you've spent probably the most time thinking and, and writing about this. Is it is it nostalgia, or do you think it was a high water mark musically for them. Well, I, I mean, at, at first I'm curious, were you guys both high school class in 97? Yeah. Yes. Uh, me too. Oh, nice. nice. So, and interesting. So that's I think that it's probably not for nothing that that uh we're all yeah. we're going from one kind of being the, the, like yeah, shackled right, right. just nonsense that is American teenagerhood, like adolescence, and then going off to college is it's just it's resetting so much. And I went mm-hmm. from a school in my high school. There were fifty-four students in my graduating class, oh, wow. and I was um, like a dweeb in a, a town full of, you know, <laughs> as, I'm going to essentialize a little bit here. Basically, big burly farm dudes uh, who were they'd get up at the crack of dawn, they'd work until school started, they'd come in smelling of the farm, they would go to vocational education and do shit that I would make fun of them for because I had no idea what their lives were like, and I assumed they were shitty mm-hmm. and then they'd yeah. go back to the farm and they'd work until it was sunset uh and we had nothing to talk about and nothing in common and i didn't understand that they were actual people and and they uh, I, I have no idea what they what they understood about me and so i had all of this stupid antagonistic nonsense with my town um and and then i went off to 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 boston and to mit where as near as i could tell everybody was more like me Every right. single person there was more like me than any single person I'd ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to be a great feeling. It's, well, it, it's a great feeling and a distorting one because it turns out it wasn't true. 
over the like, line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I was also exactly as different from them as I was from everybody yeah. else in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that it, like the total shift of category into which I might even fit other people in the world is inseparable in my mind from, you know, going from like listening to my parents' record collection and the like eight CDs that I owned in high school to all of a sudden, like, I, I, I remember in January 98, I went to a taping. I, I will answer your question, I promise. Um, in, in January 98, I went to a taping party at this guy Dave's house in Porter Square. And we, it's like eight people showed up with tape decks, with wow. Daisy Chain the tape decks, and somebody had a first-generation analog of December 30th. And we all taped it. Like, we just played the whole thing, and we were all hearing it for the first time and flipping the fuck out because it was so good. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody was coming away with this wonderful, you know, second-generation uh, uh, analog. And it was like I felt, for the first time, the possibility that I might actually be, be a grown-up, like doing a, making a grown-up choice, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, A, very few 18-year-olds are, so I should have shut right. the fuck up about it. But, but right. B, it was like... I'd never felt that free. Mm-hmm. And um, and looking back so, on it, it's really not that monumental at all, right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a small thing, but honestly, right, right, right. so is everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I'm just saying. Right. Like the second law of thermodynamics is really the big thing, and everything else is kind of a small <laughs> thing. You know? So uh, back to MIT stuff. I think you're right, man. I mean, I I totally get what you're saying. I mean, I think we had the same thing going to college. We went to Ohio State, so we we were just going to party, but we um. <laughs> But we still didn't want to go back to our hometown, and neither of us did. But um, you know, the 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 point of like being able to say like I'm going to go to this Dayton show, and for me, twelve seven ninety seven was a Sunday night, and Monday morning the eighth I had my first ever college exam, and I drove from Dayton back to Columbus at two a.m. and got up at eight or something and went and took the exam, and like of course if I was in high school that wouldn't have happened because my parents wouldn't have let me, but I was like, you know. Fuck I'm doing it. it. Fuck it. I'm an adult. And I think I got, you know, I got an A minus. So fuck fuck them all. But right. I mean, right. I guess so 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 sorry, Wally, back to your I don't know if you were I think you were getting to the music piece, but <laughs> <laughs> the um but no, I mean I I appreciate everything you're saying. The music itself was um was also sort of open and free, right? I mean it was it was a convergence of of our lives and the the way the music was going. Exactly. I feel like um, there's a the the shift in the in the music the shift in the music from a particular like mannered approach to improvisation um, and f- you know from in '95 like trying to do as much as loudly as quickly with as much fucking weird intensity as possible and 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 bringing this unbelievable like maximalist roar to, to everything and then when they played quietly it was like. Quiet, everybody. We're going to play really quietly now, and there was an there was an almost brittleness to it, because yeah. these guys were young and they could do anything in the fucking world, and it's like you never you never were allowed to forget that there were guys who could do anything in the world, and in ninety six well ninety six is my lost year. I don't I just don't I don't get it. It just doesn't ring my, it doesn't uh, ring cherries for me, and then somehow in nineteen ninety seven, the four biggest four brains in music all of a sudden just let go. And could just let, all of a sudden they started letting moments organically shift 
like fluidly and organically and evolutionarily instead of um, with like driving band leader intensity from Trey transform and that just that feeling of transformation the feeling that every moment was like if something boring happens now just ride it because yeah. it's exactly as valuable as the exciting thing that's going to happen in two minutes yeah. um, mm-hmm. and really you know we're going to deliver a good value like you're going to get something exciting in two minutes but don't sweat it mm-hmm. that that was a really I feel like that that lesson even even in the symbolic terms in which the music gives you the lesson instead of the you know the the linguistic terms that I'm using now like I feel like that's important it's mm-hmm. extraordinary to hear that and I feel like everybody in the room got some version of that you know well, like the I, I like the content like the of the 90, music is content uh, <laughs> right yeah. it's uh, they're wonderful points man and and it's it's great to hear you talk about them and I love the I think Archie and I would share the opinion of 96. Archie and I share a lot of opinions. It's probably boring for people, but um, <laughs> the the 95 to 96 to 97, and then you get to 97, and it's like, you know, I, I don't know if it's a precipice or whatever, the plateau, the end of the plateau, but, like, the uh, intense intensity from early 90s, 90s to, to 95 kind of goes into like bleeds into 96 but kind of goes away in the 97 and they, they've learned to like be laid back and realize that they can have like dance parties but then 98 and 99 come around and they realize that along with these dance parties can uh, they don't have to be like I, i'm making assumptions here but they don't have to be sober on stage right mm-hmm. and that i think that leads us to yeah to or, or bound where to they practice got. or or, right. or any sort of norms about what they did before whether it's drugs or practice or set lists mm-hmm. or you know um not yeah. not being goofy and serious or or not being goofy anymore at all which they did for a while right it was right yeah you're i think you're totally right sorry go ahead sweet so um so wally did you see any shows in 2013 it doesn't matter if you did or you didn't but uh, really no, what i want to know is what i want to know is how you feel about it um it feels like it's a totally different band <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, in no small measure. Um, that was a dopey, I feel like that was a fucking dopey sentence. It feels <laughs> to me, they're so, they're, they're, they're just worlds apart. Um, mm-hmm. And the people are worlds apart from the people they were. And I'm not the same listener that I was. Yeah. So I don't, I can't, it's like seeing the, the 140th episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, it's never going to, which if we're <laughs> going to talk about fandoms, like that's one of my hardcore fandoms. Oh, it's man, Buffy. that's really? awesome. Oh, yeah, man. I was not man. expecting yeah. to hear that. It, it has, so it shares with, it, it shares with Fish a freaky level of technical facility. Mm-hmm. But because that, the, the lead writer of the show is, He's able to be very human and fluent, despite having despite having extraordinary uh, uh, technical resources uh, at hand, and he's found a way to uh, to like work through his mannerism and his his fluency and just get to very very pure expression. And so when he's you know he'll write these you'll get these unbelievably like fast moving dialogue scenes of like 30 back and forth exchanges at the end of which is this long silence and then a kind of inarticulate just bleat of pure emotion mm-hmm. hmm. and i feel like <laughs> there's so much fish that is like we're going to we're going to work algebraically through every possible musical permutation and then which it's just going to let a single crystalline note float out mm-hmm. and everybody can hold on to that and then the sky opens up when you say it's a totally different band, you're a totally different listener. Do you mean in terms of 
it's just it's just different or do you feel that it's um do you want to use any terms like better worse best ever but you know worst ever or do you just think it is it just a totally different thing that you haven't wrapped your head around yet i mean do you remember the whole fish fandom online is a pretty small teacup but within it there was something of a tempest about like ranking and rating mm-hmm. over the mm-hmm. past couple of years um partially because you know metaphors are from sports, and especially from fantasy sports, which is like Dungeons and Dragons for frat guys. Uh, um, like, those metaphors are really prevalent in fish fandom. But um, I, like, I ended up writing a bunch of somewhat tetchy articles about how ranking and rating is bad for the soul and this and that. Mm-hmm. And this kind of shallow, pseudo-Buddhist stuff that I'm prone to write. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that stuff is all okay as far as it goes. But the fact is put me in a room and I'm going to fucking tell you that something is the best ever and I'm going to shove it into your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they've been getting better year, year, in, year after year since they came back. Um, 2013, fall 2013 was the first tour where I felt like I was slightly less interested than I had been in previous tours. Really? Um, partially mm-hmm. because, again, I think I had so much... like riding on the summer tour like i was so anxious that they in their 30th year like transcend and become avatars of the god of music or whatever um they kind of did though right or no? yeah it actually happened <laughs> it sort of happened <laughs> summer was a fucking extraordinary tour yeah it was just so by fall you were just like i need a break yeah because i thought fall picked up and, and elevated oh. summer but what, <laughs> what was your thought about fall or- so it, it's the the music that I heard, like as I was hearing it all for the first time, uh, I, like I remember listening to the the third Hampton show. Is it the were there three? I think there were yes. three. Um, the Sunday show, the one with the, the Tweezer, and Golden Age, mm-hmm. and Piper. This, I mean, just and two thousand one. It was my dream show. Right. Like as near as I could tell, they were playing my dream show, and they were playing it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like as I was hearing that, I was like, all my wishes have come true. And it's like I wasn't even listening to the music. It was the fact that my wishes had come true is the thing that I was so happy about. It was giving um, you like a warm fuzzy? Uh, I, I, had, I had a warm fuzzy. Look, I don't want to say that I had an erection because <laughs> statistically speaking. You can't say that on this podcast, actually. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's his family, family no, podcast. No, no, this is, it's like, it's, it's viewer discretion or whatever. Oh, okay. people, I'm not going to talk much about my, my stuff, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely, I definitely had a metaphorical thought erection at the moment. I have nice. one right now. Nice. With thought my erections are the best. Uh, yeah. Um, Video chat captures it perfectly. I no longer know yeah. what I'm talking, what I was talking about. This happens to me all the fucking time. Um, <laughs> 2013 fish. Yeah, something. Yeah, but it's so, awesome. as I've gone so back, dream to set to list, dream the dream your dream show was playing out at Hampton. Yeah. That, I mean, the Hampton show, like, I, I listened to it in the car during my horrific commute in the morning to Woburn. It's, it's great. Everything about it is great. And I listened to the Hartford tweezer that people are so, so psyched about. Is it a tweezer? Or, I can never, I don't, I can't, part of, part of it is I don't even have, like, that mental map of the tour in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Where like I have the timeline, like I can write down every set list from Fall ninety seven. That I can't do that with this tour. Art is um, good at it. I'm still building it up. I agree. It's hard to do. That's it's hard. And and for the for the modern music, like mm-hmm. that that's almost that's that's somewhat revealing about about the way I'm listening now is that it's it's in pieces and it's in iTunes. Like I don't have those little plastic XL twos mm-hmm. to hold yes. up mm-hmm. and like right. feel the power of the tape as I think about it. Um, 
And so the music is, they're into this amazing, like, they're into this really extraordinary melodic and harmonic and rhythmic fluidity uh, and smoothness of transition from one musical space to another. Um, I wrote a lot about this this, this summer because uh, I was so in awe of it. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, I think from, from Saratoga, the split open and melt this summer. Awesome. Is Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, some of the best fish I've ever heard. Un- uncanny right. music. Um, and it's just like they're just tumbling constantly. Even, even within a single groove, they're like tumbling from... Mm-hmm one like harmonic home base to another and they're just doing it without worrying about it yeah and, and there's this like, effort yeah it's yeah and seemingly without any effort even though you know they're working their asses off up there right yeah right um i watched the webcast for that this back show and i was mm-hmm. i was it was one of like probably the first time since maybe like the late 90s when i was I didn't know if it was still the same song, you know, like f- like 15 minutes into it. I'm like, wait yeah. a second, like, yeah. because it had cycled through so many different, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they seem to be really, really experimenting. And actually, just to go back to the, the Hampton Tweezer, I mean, I think that was the most exploratory, experimental I've heard them, you know, in a long time. And I think the SPAC melt was similar, but it's in, that's what you're describing, right? It's just, just letting go and, and seeing what, what's out there. Yeah, and having the having the confidence and the trust in one another to to just just let the music evolve. Like that was so easy for them when they were all in a van all the time and they like <laughs> their lives depended on one another. And now they right. don't. And that sense of like joyful urgency is something the old music gives me very strongly and the new music it's I I think I'm prejudiced and it's harder for me to hear it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's harder for me to share in it. Mm-hmm. I did see a show this year. <laughs> what am I talking about? I saw one of the Worcester shows. I'm out of my mind. I'm That's so amazing. Awesome. So what did you think yeah. of that show? I, I had two sort of anti-parallel reactions. One, it was an amazing fish show. It was ridiculous. Like the, the, the number of highlight reel like climaxes in the second set was just, it was outlandish. Everything they played, they played superbly. Um, they were they're having such a good time and they're so like happy to be alive. And that infuses every single note that they play and Fishman has his chops back and Paige is an actual like functioning rock piano player um, in a way that he took ages to become like he's, he's, he's always been this weird question mark in the band for me because chops wise, like Mike uh, clearly could do, the the like rock based job and was doing it and a bunch of other stuff as well and Fishman is a superhuman and Trey is Trey uh, and but Paige has always seemed like the 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 dorky guy who somehow wandered on stage mm-hmm. and like he has this set of skills that would not make sense in any other band um, and so I think I, like I underrated him for the longest time and I feel like other people do as well and I, when I hear him solo I'm like ah oh, come on. You know, you have more than two fingers. It, it's okay. You can use them all. And if if to hear him, like I I I get embarrassed sometimes, like to play it for like serious serious musicians. I go especially mm-hmm. serious keyboard players, because he's like he wouldn't be able to hack it in a in a straight ahead jazz band. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Fish, his ears and his level of empathy and responsiveness and just his harmonic imagination that is way bigger than his his uh, pure finger work um i think uh, are right. unbelievable hmm. and in fish he thrives he's it, the way phil lash thrives in the grateful dead mm-hmm. and, and is uh, yeah. 
by some metrics almost abysmal. Um, <laughs> like a, prod- a prodigy with who, right. he, who gets away with, with being... music, not so much the bass. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he's yeah. A, a prodigy who I think is rewarded at some level for being a prodigy, and he plays brilliant Grateful Dead bass. He shouldn't. Um, he still shouldn't sing, though, in my opinion. What do you think about the the level and amount of discussion and criticism online about Fish over the past? I think it's really exploded over the past few years. What do you think about it? Do you think it's good for the community? Good for discourse? Is it all bullshit? What do you think? Did you? When I like, I was obsessed with Rec Music Fish in the from about I think ninety six. We first got our we got our first internet connection in late ninety ninety five in our house. And from basically at that moment, I, I went nuts for for online, just well everything, but but online fish fandom in no small measure. It was like Rosemary's Digest. <laughs> uh, Charlie Dirksen was posting his reviews, and Benji Eisen mm-hmm. uh, was yeah. writing his stuff. Uh, I remember he wrote, Benji wrote. Um, I, I swear it was him. He wrote a review of Billy Breathes, where he sort of it was almost a, a poem, like a lyric poem about the album, like working his way through all of the songs on the album, and it really moved me. It really blew my mind. I still remember it to this day. And uh, the news group was amazing. The level of discourse was simultaneously unbelievably high that people were so interested in talking about the most minute aspects of this music that they were obsessively chasing all over the country. It's unbelievable. And at the same time, st- almost everybody was like a moron. <laughs> Almost everybody who ever posted that news group, like the number of people on it who were literate and numerate, is a rounding error <laughs> on the number of people who were troglodytic fucking douchebags, um, and that remains true. Uh, the thing is, it's it's so much easier to just aim for the the folks whom you're interested in now. Mm-hmm. Silver lining is that it's always been it's always been morons on the internet, and it'll always be morons <laughs> on the internet. But now you can you can. Avoid the morons sometimes, except when you agree to come on a podcast. Then you're That's fucked. right. Let's talk about Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> um, Let's. It's the dream show. Eleven fourteen ninety seven is the show that Wally chose. It's from the E Center in West Valley City. Fish played uh, the E Center twice, ninety seven and ninety eight. And you know, according to Fish dot net reviews, which uh, Wally has taken part of. Oh. Um, there, it was only about half full for the show, which kind of makes sense. It was the first time they played there. Um, it's Salt Lake City. You know, following a lot of reviews. Following the Vegas show, right? So everybody probably was yeah. just staying in Vegas. Yeah, like, let's just stay in Vegas. We're only going to play the second set for y'all because we talked a lot and <laughs> also because we don't want to take up too much of everyone's time. Um, <laughs> and we like so, talking. And we like to talk more. It's it's a second set. It's 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 an amazing second set, and it's really the set list is just really silly when you look at it. Um, we obviously will review the set list on the on the backside of it after the encore. Um, but before we start, as always, we'd like to give a shout out to CashierTrade.org. Um, MSG is just a few weeks away. Um, everybody's getting pumped. If uh, you're looking for tickets or looking to get rid of your tickets or trade tickets, or uh, go to cashertrade.org. It's it's legitimate. It's great. It's good, run by good people, and and um, they should uh, be better known throughout the community than they already are. Mm-hmm. The other day, like I had two 1228s. I wanted to get rid of them for two 1229s. I posted on Cash or Trade. Two minutes later, someone emailed me, and they're like, "Hey, I have tickets. Same section. Um, let's trade." And I like emailed oh, okay. him. The next day, I went to the post office. We each sent each other pictures of like the the 
tracking label or whatever and yeah. we both got our tickets today and it was like it took me a total of like probably 35 minutes of work and i mean it was just it's such a good forum because I, I think it's like it's trusted people right at, at yeah. least that's yeah. the that's the hope so uh reviews on itunes i hit us up at twitter hf pod and our emails helping friendly podcast at gmail Dot com. So let's get right into the second set of 11.14.97. We will see you here after the encore. Enjoy the show.
This podcast is brought to you by the Showtime original Personality Crisis, One Night Only. Directed by Academy Award winner Martin Scorsese and Emmy nominee David Tedeschi, Personality Crisis, One Night Only celebrates the enduring cultural legacy of David Johansson's life and all of his personas. From his days as a pioneer of the punk rock movement, leading rock band New York Dolls, to his reinvention as Buster Poindexter, the chameleonic Johansson created a genre unto himself. Featuring a live performance, Personality Crisis, One Night Only is a testament to a performer who challenged the world to think about identity differently, changing music forever. Personality Crisis, One Night Only, streaming April 14th, only on Showtime. Streaming with Paramount+. Plus. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
Welcome back, America. You just listened to the November 14th Utah show from fall 1997. That's 1997. <laughs> Set two, which you just heard, was Wolfman's Brother into Piper, into Twist, finally into Slave. That's Slave to the Traffic Light with a T. The Encore, Bold as Love by Jimi Hendrix. That's J-I-M-I. Don't be cute. <laughs> Set one that you didn't hear... Ha ha, was Runaway Jim, Gumbo, Into Maze, Into, Fast Enough for You, 2001, which is actually also Sprax Zarathustra, Into Funky Bitch, pardon me for swearing, Gaiuti, <laughs> and then Run Like an Antelope. <laughs> nice, huh? That's, That's Fish. Great. Pretty good. P-H-I-S-H, Fish. I'm with my co-hosts, Flim Flam and Bilge Bucket. We're bringing you big <laughs> fucking conversations about gigantic, soul-searing issues like... Did our jam band play a really great show on Sunday 15 years ago? <laughs> Prepare to have your minds blown out of the back of your skulls. Nice. I should probably pluralize backs. Blown out of the backs of your skulls. We'll just fix that shit in thank post. Thank you for the edit. Yeah, thank you for the edit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nice. Uh, I, think I'm, I think I'm supposed to kick off the commenting here. <laughs> yeah, go for it. What do you think of the Wolfman's opener? I mean, tell us a little bit about your take on it. Um, I, I mean, what <sighs> it's, I think of the entire show as a, sh- a, sh- a show. Like I think of the entire second set as a continuous piece of music. And one of the weird things about the show is that like, it's all, they're all pretty long tracks in the second set. Like they all run long and There's they all play into each other really naturally. And so I, I see it as like the first movement, the, the, they're sort of starting off with jaunty funk. They're just kind of getting it together. The first set, mm-hmm. the, the first song of the first and second sets is often the like, let's play a thing that's got a pretty straightforward rhythm. Um, we can all just kind of lock into a groove, and locking into a groove is intrinsically valuable to the band, whatever the groove is. Wolfman's Brother is a plodding, ridiculous, broken down, swamp nonsense tune. Like, it's, it's yep. just a, it's a joke of a song. But when they get into that jam, it's just. They're so good. They're so fluent. And they were never better at that song than in Fall 97, to me, than in, in 1997. And so that one oh. is just, like, it's this thick atmosphere that just seems to be, like, encroaching in on the music as they're playing. And you can tell that they start out, like, they start out playing this dance groove, and it's popping, and they're slapping, and they're doing whatever it is that they do when they're playing funk in big quotation marks, because it's Fish, not an actual funk band. But there's this other sound that's just kind of always creeping in. And you, there's this one specific moment where Mike uh, is playing, he, like, starts playing these these figures high up on his fifth string, and he's you can tell, like, when he's deciding that he wants to sort of lift their feet off the ground a little bit, because as the you know the beat is continuing behind him and he starts sustaining these long notes and like arresting the movement of the jam and back then that didn't mean like let's stop and start playing an ambient space and then we're going to transition into Susie Greenberg or whatever back then it could still mean like let's slow down and let the like smoke start to seep into things a little bit and let the like a darkness encroach uh, I, it just feels like the drums just can't keep going. Like they just, it's, there's just mm-hmm. no point that there's this cool, heavy, serious gravity that the band is is fighting. That they finally win against that that gravity in twist. Like it all sort of builds up 
to that dramatic like lifting up out of out of that gravitational pull twist. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Wolfman is finally like the Earth just pulls them the fuck down. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. That's well, the, I, the feeling gives me. So we spoke a little bit earlier about like '97 verse today, and. It, uh, in in at Dick's they played the Wolfman's like the Saturday show, and it was like the first set, maybe third song I think, I think it was the third song, and I I, I was actually next to uh, Stu Kelly, um at that show, and I looked at him and I was like, dude, if they went like buried alive, ACDC bag, Wolfman's, this, like this could be a '97 show we're listening to right now, like this could turn into like a funk fest, like a just a funk monster. Um, and it obviously didn't, but it reminded me of it reminded me of this uh, eleven fourteen ninety seven Wolfman's, and it was just like that plotting to start. Obviously, that plotting groove that's just a nice groove throughout. They now don't keep that groove throughout the whole song. You know what I mean? They they now take it different places. Obviously, mm-hmm. but back in ninety seven for like twenty minutes or whatever, they can keep that groove going, and it's so it's just so nice. It's just such a nice funk groove. You could just like listen to it for an hour, and it's fine. You know, I, I'd be totally fine with it. I'd be happy. You know? Yeah, it's, it's great music. I mean, I wasn't at this show. I was at the eleven nineteen show where they had another just really nice Wolfman's that just kind of carried. You know, it seemed like half the show, which is sort right, of what this right. feels like when you listen to it. And it's interesting, yeah, the Wolfmans now, they, it seems like they're more building them to a peak, like a bathtub gin mm-hmm. or something, you know? Like, it'll build yeah. to, like, a, a... And it it's great, but this is just a totally different animal. Um, and the funk piece is just, you know, obviously it's what defines 97, but what do you, I guess, having gone through all this and, and written the book, what's the... Um, <laughs> What, how would you describe the way that the funk evolved over the fall, if if you would describe that at all? Um, well, uh, I want to I want to mention that uh, AK Lingus mm-hmm. asked on Twitter, like, what are some what would be some some jams like underrated jams that should be getting more attention mm-hmm. in fall '97? And I refuse to answer that question directly. Instead, to indirectly answer it, <laughs> I will also indirectly answer your question and a unified. <laughs> A magic trick. I've I've actually forgotten what you just asked me, but um, it's. I feel like Fall '97. It, the reputation it had for the longest time was that it was like this funk tour, but yes. it's not. It's, it's not, not about. It's not about funk as a style of music. Um, it's about like the place that playing funk that the methods to make funk took them to. So they had the this minimalist method where they were all like they were trying to find each other. They're trying to find like rhythmic lockstep and to open spaces for one another and to settle back and to establish a kind of a continuity, a baseline, a rhythmic baseline and, and very, very simple harmonic material at first. And to let like subtle changes to the groove change the center of gravity of the jam and like start pushing them out into new places. Um, and it's, it's not like you can feel this kind of amazing, just easygoing syncopation in everything that they're playing, no matter what genre it is, but it's, it's ultimately not just about those dance grooves. It's about like when you're listening to that Wolfman's brother, just the way that like the very, very simple material that they're working with, it's so simple that even the slightest breeze perturbs it in really like really significant ways mm-hmm. and they back then had this willingness to stay with it and say you know what we're just gonna we're just gonna vibrate along with it um and let those natural vibrations like begin to build up and out um 
And so that's why, like, Wolfman's in Fall 97, like, every version turns into this other thing. Um, mm-hmm. My favorite is the, is the Worcester version that I was blessed to be there for. And as terrible as that Heartbreaker Jam is, um, it's fun to see it, I guess, for the first two <laughs> minutes. Like, the first 20 minutes of that performance are perfect. And it, they never, like, leave the basic Wolfman's beat behind, but it no longer resembles itself in, like, the 15th minute because it's just... They were just letting, like, they were letting the feel of the of the groove just carry them out, um, and not like trying to do tricks with it as they would do back in the olden days. Just like letting, like, letting the groove remain a groove and just like and sitting in it. But as it began to change itself, like, not worrying about it, not needing to get back to the original, and not wanting to force it to be anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and I feel like. Those are lessons that came out of playing funk and sort of addressing the basic problem that they weren't funky and couldn't play funk for the longest time. Um, and like learning to do the, the, the minimalist method, do you know what I mean? Or a minimalist method. Um, and that's what liberated them to be funky. I think RJ and I, and RJ, I want to hear your comments on this too, but I think we've talked about it in the, in the form of Fishman and that like the easiest way to notice um, it's just like that Fishman keeps keeps like the same beat or the same um, rhythm, the same timing going for like an extended period of time. He just doesn't do it anymore, you know, and it's more he's he's taking more of a lead. He's more of a jazz drummer, but I really enjoy it. And in, and while you talked about that breeze, it's like when you're actually into it, maybe you got your headphones on or you're like in your car and it's really loud. You can like hear every little change. And that's what that's what's really appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, as 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 much like as much gravity and groundedness as, as the music had, like as their just sort of funky dance grooves had back then, like you're still they were still so like responding instead of in the like whiplash inducing way where they'd respond to every little idea that everybody else in the band had, and they sounded very nervous for the longest time. Like when I hear their like early '90s, especially their '80s music, like their it sounds nervous to me because they're like, we've got to, we've got to mm-hmm. explore that idea really quick. Uh, oh, we've got to, we've got to hold up. We got to follow this idea really, really like fast now. And so it's a different kind of music every 20 seconds. And in 97, instead it's like, well, you know, everything, bring it in. That's all right. You know what you're playing? Like we'll add it to the soup. We'll see what happens. And it's, they're just going to let, they're just going to let whatever comes come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, then, so that, so that faded into, Piper, which was like the the classic kind of slow build Piper, right? They just they took their time with it, and although this was still, it's it's not that long, and and it's not it's not even it's just a nice like I feel like they get to the point pretty quickly once they build up to it. But I don't know, it's always nice to hear in in the in the middle of a set. What do you guys think? It's it's barely even a song. Like Piper is a Piper is like a space. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a resting place. Um, it's new. It's still new at this point. Yeah, yeah, and it just it just sounds like it's like the tide coming in, and they take <laughs> see, that. It's such a melodramatic version to me. Like it's just they're just building and building and building before they even get to the lyrics. Like they're just they're just letting the music very very slowly just roll in, and it's got this just oceanic force and power. It's amazing. Um, and it feels like it's continuing from Wolfman's, mm-hmm. like because Wolfman's has, 
begun to like break down a little at the end into this arrhythmic space and Piper just naturally, like naturally comes right out of that. Um, and so that's what, when I say that it all feels like one movement, it's, there's not a, there's, it's nothing clever about the transition. It's just emotionally right. You learn emotional tempo from music in part. Yeah. Yeah. Like you learn, you learn, uh, uh what what kind of feelings will follow on what kind of stimuli? Uh, this it sounds. I don't even know if I'm making even the slightest bit of sense now. But it's like you, it, it teaches you how to like gracefully tumble from one strong feeling to another and not to be ashamed about it and to let a purely emotional logic just be itself and to be fucking okay with that. Mm-hmm. That's such a valuable lesson. And this music, whatever its whatever its aesthetic virtues. I adore this. I adore this twist. I mean, it's it's a really singular twist. Like it's it's mm. it's like a marquee performance because it's the first space jam. It's what the I guess what people call the space jam of the fall, and it feels inevitable. That's the that's the coolest thing about it is mm-hmm. that like Trey just starts playing this cadenza because the music has just reached uh, it's just reached a point of like crystalline clarity and and presence and just hushed like co-presence everybody's just there and he just needs to say the words he just needs to like he's the voice of the band and so he Mm -hmm. just gets to speak this feeling for the band it feels like Mm -hmm. it's and the best part is that the well the best part the one thing about it is that i feel like twist used to have a less uh, almost a less aggressive arrangement when it in in 97 as opposed yeah. to when the yeah, album yeah. version, mm-hmm. it's true. Uh, like limb by limb, floated into the jam instead of it getting yeah, yeah, off. Yeah, they, like, they walked their way into it. Yeah, yeah. And so tw- twist feels the same way. Like the um, the twist, the December six twist actually has that. Uh, you can just kind of slowly float into it really quietly, and they float in and out of it in hush and quiet. Right. Um, and so this one, it just like it can pick up despite it being a totally different rhythmic feel from Piper it continues the emotional logic of Piper like the 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 feel of it the mood stays continuous and so when they build up to that enormous peak it's just it's all it's all still flowing like it doesn't feel like this is the peak of twist it just feels like let's go up let's see what's mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. and now so. on the other side we'll see what's down a little bit <laughs> So RJ turns out that uh, Wax Banks is a genius. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> this is all like this. I mean, it actually does all. It all makes sense to me. Um, right. It'll uh, stop making sense when we shut off this conversation. <laughs> Don't listen to it twice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then you know, I mean, it's interesting um, going back to these Fall '97 shows because I think the I think um, the one of the great things about this show this is probably one of the less discussed fall 97 shows which that's you know when brad and i started this podcast earlier this year that was sort of our one of our goals was to try and highlight shows that were less talked about and less sort of quote-unquote famous than than others but um going back to these this show the fact that it was four songs in the second set which is just like every song meant something right there was no i mean like if you I wouldn't have gone to the bathroom and I would have been like, I would like pee, maybe peed my pants or something. Cause like you can't, this, there's no breaks here and it's just, it all, yeah. even though it's not a connected set, like, like Jones beach was this year, whatever you like, all the songs fit together. They were almost like different chapters in the same book. Um, that's a lame analogy, but you know, they, they all were related, but they were different. Um, maybe like one of those movies, like four rooms or something. Um, 
But anyway, of the, all the movies, man. <laughs> sorry, I've never even seen that movie. It's uh, terrible. <laughs> okay. It's just Isn't terrible. it about four different stories? Yeah, all of them. Cool. Tim Roth is a busboy, and run, there are four run, movies maybe. that kind of suck. Run, Lola, run. He has to there, be in the. There you go. I mean, yeah, whatever. I've never seen the movie. I just know that it's about four different rooms. Nice. Um, <laughs> hey, so you know, you know, the movie Four Rooms is about four different rooms. Yep. <laughs> awesome. That's the extent of it. That's well, it. You got that right. Thanks, man. Um, <laughs> anyway, so let's talk about the slave. What do you guys? What do you guys think of the slave? I mean, there's there's a lot to say, but also it's fairly simple that it's amazing. Right. But I don't know, Wally. What's your take? It's church, man. It's like mm-hmm. it's like hearing an organ in church. I yeah. think uh, Tyler, Tyler of the unpronounceable last name, Tyler F., um, on Twitter, I think he was saying that uh, you don't stop listening to that slave. It releases Ooh. you. So yeah. I thought mm. it was a beautiful turn of phrase. Nice. Um, That's really cool. I, I skip over the, the first two minutes of Every Slave. I don't, it's, this, as a song, it's, kind of, it's nothing. Um, <laughs> really? I haven't heard, so I, I often just skip it. But you can't yeah. do that when you're listening to a single hour-long performance, can you? No, Don't. you can't do that in general. It's, well, you can do whatever you want. I mean, yeah, it's America, but more or less, <laughs> it's America. I mean, the, but the um, slave is slave is a very is almost a well-defined like we're going to play loud, and now we're going to stop, mm-hmm. and now we're very very quietly, and we're going to build up smoothly to a, a sharp point at the end, mm-hmm. and then stop loud. Um, and mm-hmm. but it's the and the, the three songs prior to it, Wolfman's is this uh like it starts with this clattering Rube Goldberg rhythm machine that just like it turns into a fucking cloud and then Piper's this form this Piper form emerges from the cloud and then goes back into it and and twists like is sort of floats in almost kinda of offhandedly and then builds up to that absolutely gorgeous Trey solo where he's like, it's just angel speak. It's, it's all, it's all so like, so misty and, 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 and formless. And so slave is a punctuation. And slave (laughs) sends you off with, with, you know, seen the city and seen the zoo and the traffic light won't let me through. On one hand, those aren't lyrics. We're adults. Mm -hmm. We can admit that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, that's not exactly the, the lightest of sentiments. Mm-hmm. He's not talking about seeing the city. Mm-hmm. He's done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's stuck. He's not talking about driving in the city. It's not crosstown traffic, like, which sounds like driving. It sounds like mm-hmm. static mm-hmm. in Slave. And the song's called Slave, fuck's sake. Yeah, right, um, right. Yeah. But it's like the ambivalence of the composed part of Slave and the, like, the, the darkness and the, the, the heaviness. Um, is is then you're given a very structured release. They're basically saying, all right, all of that is done. The previous 45 minutes, like, they brought you to this point, and from here on, we're on the stairs. And then it's just, like, it's this march to the top. Hood, to me, is like floating up to the top. Mm-hmm. We're being carried away by a river. Mm-hmm. Um, slave, to me, sounds like a march up the side of a mountain to reach the top and plant a flag that says we hit the peak in Slave. <laughs> Which they did in this show. Jesus Christ. I mean, this is just... <laughs> unbelievable music yeah yeah Yeah, it's it's, and it's very defined like that big peak is defined and i feel like it was necessary on that night because the the three preceding songs were so uh just hushed and hesitant and and you're flowing like water between them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then slave is is just drop kicks you out into whatever state you're trying to next yeah 
I mean, so that's the four. That's the four song second set, and then the encore, "Bold as Love," which is, which is a great encore. I think. I mean, people, you Amazing. know, it, and this is a great version, and um, better than you know, uh, even "Good Times, Bad Times" or something. It has a little bit more, a little bit more depth to it. Um, what do you guys think of the encore? Listening back to it, Paige's vocals really take you. It, it really, it really adds a nice end to the night. I, I, mm-hmm. You, I feel like you couldn't be sent off with a better song than "Slave." I, I know I just compared it to "Hood" or whatever, but you, to end this kind of second set, it just sends you off into the night, and you're like, "Oh, this is so wonderful! What a great set!" And then they play "Bold as Love," and it's Paige and his, you know, wonderful voice and his piano. It's a tremendous ending. I mean, it's they can play Hendrix every night Period. five times, as far as I'm concerned. They do they do his music well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as like Trey is, is biting Hendrix's rhymes all through Fall ninety seven, like Paige belts that song out. Yeah. And they just play the hell out of it. And they just love that. And it's also kind of an uncharacteristic sound for them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, like as much as much Hendrix as, as there is in their sound back then, the specific sound of, of the like of the closing jam, of the the, in, the instrumental outros, like it's not a it's not a progression or it's not a it's not a vibe that they capture very often. You know, I, I, maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering. I don't listen to, you know, I don't listen to Bold as Love very often. But mm-hmm. no, no, I, th- I understand what you're saying. It's like Trey has Trey has a, a specific like harmonic language, like a language of sound that he favors. Mm-hmm. And Bold as Love kind of doesn't fit into it. It sounds exactly like Hendrix. Like you hear it and you instantly know whose song it is. Or at least yeah. I like it. Sounds like a bunch of his other songs, mm-hmm. and there's a specific like sonic vocabulary that's his um, that yeah, fish that, it doesn't seem to have inherited much of. Do you know what I mean? Um, yep. Wally, I'm I'm really glad that you, uh, you picked the show. Um, I don't I can't say that we would have picked it on our own. So mm-hmm. um, thanks a lot. And and to end it, we always ask um, our guests to pick a, a MVP of their. Uh, of the second set. Well, who do you think was the MVP for you in, in those five songs we listened to? Any, I mean, any, anytime you have the one-two punch of, as, as, as doofy as this is, anytime you have the one-two punch of Trey's, like, solo statement to close Twist and Slave, which is Trey just, it's, it's like a long, it's Trey just spraying, spraying guitar sound all over it. I'm trying to find a non-sexual wave. <laughs> no. It's just Trey just coding everybody in the place with just gooey love, guitar love. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like he, he puts his stamp and his sensibility so much on the set at the end that it's, it, it always sounds to me like him. And I can think of moments throughout the set where every, where every member of the band gets to kick ass but for him, for me, it's like he's the one who gets to deliver the, the closing declamation. Yeah, and I uh, agree. RJ, what do you think about? I mean, I'm. I, this is, I think, playing into the funk cliche of Fall '97. But I just, I can't help hearing how much different Mike sounds here than in you know '95, '96. Um, mm-hmm. So I would, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Mike because it's just. It's such a different um, contribution, I think. Nice. I um, I have to admit that this was like one of the f- uh, most. I don't know how I want to say this. I have to admit that I hadn't listened to a '97 show in a while until um, you know we we studied up for this podcast, and it stuck out to me from the Wolfman's just just Fish, Fishman's um, forthrightness, his yeah. his uh, direct approach. 
And um, so I'll, I'll go ahead with um, naming Fishman as my MVP. Awesome. Um, so, uh, Wally, thanks again so much for taking the time. I, like you said, it's late, and I appreciate it, and we all got little ones. I hope every, everyone enjoys it, um, and, and we obviously thank you for tuning us in or downloading us or whatever you're doing. Uh, check us out on our website. You can listen directly from there at hfpod.blogspot.com. We've also got um, web chats, which are different than podcasts up there. Check us out on Twitter, hfpod, and obviously email thoughts, suggestions, um, your love for Wally to helpingfriendlypodcast at gmail.com. We'll forward it to him. And thank you guys so much. This has been such a blast. This has just been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, you come back awesome. for sure. We, we want to spend another couple hours chatting with you about fish as soon as we're all allowed to do so. You're damn right. <laughs> awesome. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. Keep on rocking. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.